My name is Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. Our first reading comes from the fifth chapter of Romans. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Here ends the reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 16th chapter. Jesus said to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the Gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. Of all the things that Christianity professes, that Christians believe in, there's one that stands out that probably takes the cake if we're looking at what is most agreed upon, at least as far as denominations are concerned. This is what most Christians nominally believe. And yet on an individual level is least understood. And that would be the doctrine of the Trinity. It stands out as this peculiarity. And it's with that peculiarity in mind that we get a Trinity Sunday every year. It's the only special Sunday dedicated to a doctrine, an idea, a set of beliefs, rather than an event in history. And most of those, as you know, are events in Jesus's life. It's an important doctrine that many people don't understand or they can't readily articulate what we mean when we say we believe in a triune God. So we take a little time every year to come at the doctrine from a little bit of a different angle to try to enhance and deepen our understanding. So over the years, we've looked at it from a number of angles. Uh, Just two quick examples. One year we ran down a list of bad metaphors, counterexamples, ways we poorly explain the Trinity. So those are important. God is not merely appearing in three forms. God is not serving in three roles the same way you might. And God is not three distinct parts that then come together to comprise the whole, like egg yolks, egg whites, and a shell. On another year, we also looked at how the Trinity is never named so explicitly in the scriptures, and that instead, the Trinity is revealed in them. 
and that year I compared the doctrine to black holes. See, they can't be observed directly. And even though scientists can't observe them directly, they can notice the absence of light, the other effects on the surrounding area in the sky. And that leads them to know an awful lot about black holes, maybe most importantly, that they exist at all. Well, theologians do something like that. We don't have direct access to the Trinity, nor a clear-cut revealed scriptural definition, and yet the clues are all there around the doctrine, around the reality of Trinity. We know about the Trinity because the impact of the reality of the Trinity, when God does something, when God reveals something, the reality of the Trinity is, the fact of the Trinity is kind of sprinkled throughout. So for today, we're going to look again at the doctrine from another angle, but particularly we're going to keep in mind that last bit in light of Romans and John, both texts. See, in Romans, Paul writes on what God is up to in light of our salvation and our suffering and how those two things might be connected in our experiences. With God on our side, suffering can be redeemed. So you have this transformation of sorts. It works its way over to building character and finally giving hope. And this isn't to say we glorify suffering like we'd want to bring it about, bring about more suffering in the world to try to bring about more hope or something like that. But just to note that God can do something good with it. And again, at the same time, in this extended discourse from John, Jesus tells him all about the coming Holy Spirit and how, as an advocate, the Holy Spirit will relate to Jesus and to God the Father. The Spirit extends Jesus' work, reminds them of what he taught, and then today also, from the reading, also teaches them more. The Spirit will teach them the things they can't yet bear. And in this relationship between God, the Spirit, and humanity, Christ is glorified. It's kind of roundabout how everyone's relating to everyone else. And if that sounds a bit mystic, even mysterious, well, that's about right. The way humanity is swept up in Christ's ascension, the way the fully human, fully divine Christ returns to the Godhead, fully divine, and makes a relationship between the human, like us, with the divine possible in a deeper, meaningful, eternal way. In other words, this dance of dual natures and a triune God, though never so explicitly described in these mystic, repetitive ways that Jesus describes what's really going on behind the scenes, it lays bare the path to salvation. No matter our theory of atonement, how we think we get from Jesus to salvation, that's the path we take to get to God. It's laid out by these complicated doctrines of the nature of Christ and the nature of God. It's important stuff. So for today, let's consider the one, the doctrine of the Trinity. God is three in one and one in three. We call the triune God as one, the Godhead. I've already used that expression today. As we've already seen as well, this is not three roles for God. It's not three appearances, and the Godhead is not comprised of three parts. And this should sound a little bit like mind-bending mystical stuff. To the unfaithful, it might even sound like contradictory nonsense. How can one plus one plus one equal three? Well, it's because we're not dealing in worldly categories but we can use worldly categories to build our understanding. So instead of parts, we refer to the three persons as persons. The triune God is three persons and one God. In some sense, the three persons are the same. Now, historically, the connection has often been referred to as 
an essence at the core of who the Father is, at the core of who the Son is and who the Spirit is, we find the same essence. We might describe essence then as what the object in question really is. The essence is deeper than what is perceived, often deeper than what is understood, maybe deeper than what can be understood. If you see a wax apple on the table and believe it to be a genuine piece of fresh fruit, that doesn't change its essence. Your impression of it doesn't change the fact that it is ultimately a wax decoration. Sticking with food, if you eat an impossible Whopper and believe it to be a genuine beef Whopper, that does not have any bearing on what the sandwich patty actually is. So however we think of, conceive, or observe God, the essence of the three persons is what it is. It remains the same despite us. By this shared essence, we regard God as one because these three are the only thing in all of time and all of existence that bear that essence. Okay, but say, back to worldly things, if we have three objects laid out on the table and they're all comprised of the same essence as best we understand it, does that make those three distinct objects suddenly one? No. This is why it's important that we refer to God as three persons, not three parts or three pieces or three objects or what have you. Personhood is its own entirely different category. Personhood means we have a will, a way, a set of desires. It means we have free intentional relationships. Apples, wax or not, have none of those things. If you scan over all of humanity, even over all of humanity across history, as often as you will see tribes and movements and other sorts of groups, the fact is no two human persons share the exact same will, way, desire, nor bear the exact same relationships. Not so for God. If we want to move past the mystical or philosophical notions of God's essence, another way we might identify that the three persons of the Godhead are in fact one God is by noting that similarity. They do in fact share the exact same will, way, desire, and bear the same relationships or intend to. Okay, so help, hopefully that helps at least a little bit. God is three persons who are distinct in their identity and distinct in some of what they do. However, their will, way, and desire are all one, and so shall be their relationships. And it's that last bit where the rubber hits the road, what, what it has to do with us. All over scripture, from the very first moments when God's spirit floated above the primordial sea at the start of creation, to the incarnation of Christ, to the descent of the spirit, the three persons of the Trinity are always involved when God is moving. God the Father created time and space and all that is, and Scripture tells us that the Spirit was there and that the Word, the Son of God, was the rubric by which all came into being. God the Son became incarnate, being born into history as Jesus, but the Father charted his course and declared his authority. This is my Son, the Beloved. And the Spirit drove and empowered the man. God the Spirit dwells now in humanity, giving us the power to believe in the triune God, but the Spirit draws us into relationship with God the Father 
in light of what God the Son has done and teaches. So some might paraphrase the Trinity as creator, redeemer, and sustainer then by what they do, but each person participates in the work of the others. God is not only the ideal of love, but the ideal of cooperation and participation, of welcome, accommodation, and support. God does all this relating within God's self in a way that the perfect way, the way we should aspire to. For us today, then, it may be tempting to separate the three and say, well, the Father created way back when, and then the Son was on earth not so far back when, and, not, and then the Spirit is here now, making God's will known and bringing it about as if the three persons each had a time. But that's not quite it. When Paul talks about God transforming, taking your suffering and eventually turning it into hope, hope in light of the gospel, and Jesus talks about the Spirit comforting, leading, uniting us. These are not trite, throwaway commitments. This is not some impersonal spirit left behind to kind of remind us about Jesus, as some other religions have suggested the spirit uh, be thought of. This is the entirety of the triune God, bigger than all of creation, more expansive than the universe, longer lived than all of time, and each person of the Godhead promises to support you. <laughs> yes, you as an individual, us as a community. The creator of all that is sees your suffering and responds. The savior of humanity sees your needs and tends to them. The spirit who sustains God's very kingdom has enveloped your heart and mind. This is no small matter. A final note then, uh, I alluded to one aspect of the three persons of the Trinity that makes them one, and that's the relationships they bear. As persons have relationships, so too do the persons of the Trinity. And they're not quite exactly the same because they relate to one another differently than they relate to themselves, but then also the presumed and sought-after relationships are one and the same. That's where salvation enters in. It's that big exchange that I brought up earlier. The incarnate Christ has made a relationship with God possible, and Trinity participates in this, moves in its dance toward us, such that a relationship with God the Spirit became possible at Pentecost, at our baptism, and a relationship with God the Father became possible. The Son of God taking on flesh and offering openly a relationship with anyone who trusts in him and desires God means a relationship with eternity. A relationship with Christ means a relationship with the triune God. The doctrine of the Trinity matters because as hard as it can be to wrap our minds around, sometimes it is the way by which we make sense of what has been revealed. That God is love. God loves the world, God loves you, and God seeks eternal relationship with even you. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. 
While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.